Welcome to the Future Tech edition of the Finding Genius podcast. Forget frequently asked questions, forget common sense, common knowledge, or Googling for information. How about advice from a genius in their field instead? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are the geniuses of their profession. Richard has made it his life's mission to interview the geniuses of their fields in areas such as AI, 3D printing, quantum computing, blockchain and Bitcoin, and more. Don't miss out on amazing podcasts with geniuses. Review us on iTunes or wherever you listen and go to futuretech.findinggeniuspodcast.com and subscribe today. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, the Future Tech Edition. I have uh, Mark Z. Jacobson. Uh, his career has been focused on understanding air pollution and global warming problems and then developing large-scale clean renewable energy solutions to them. So he's working on a three-dimensional atmosphere, biosphere, ocean computer models. He's simulating air pollution, weather, climate, and renewable energy. And he's also working on roadmaps to transition the state's to 100% clean renewable energy for all purposes, which would be really cool. So um, as you know, listeners, uh, my job here at Finding Genius is to find the geniuses in their fields. I've spoken to over 2,000 scientists, clinicians, and researchers over the years. So Mark, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me on, Richard. Yeah, tell me a little bit about um, how, did you, how did your interest grow and develop in modeling climate and pollution and things like that? Like, what's a bit of your background? Well, when I was really young, uh, in fact, a teenager back in the 1970s, I used to travel to Los Angeles and San Diego, and I saw that the air pollution there was really bad, and it was very difficult to see and also to breathe, and my eyes were scratchy. And I thought to myself, why should people live like this? And then, you know, and I was 13 at the time, and I thought, you know, maybe in the future when I grew up, I would try to work on my career would be focused around trying to solve those that problem of air pollution. And I l became interested in pollution and environmental uh, damage and also learned about climate as well. And that became an in interest of mine too, an acid deposition in the ozone layer. And so when I went to college, I kind of tried to focus some of my um, the work of my classes around uh, air pollution. Although when I was an undergraduate, there really was no, uh, I was at Stanford University and there was no major that I could major in that was related to it. And there were only a couple of classes here and there that actually had anything to do with it as well. And in fact, and I stayed for a master's degree and there the closest I could come was groundwater pollution. So I studied that, but I really wanted to study air pollution and ultimately climate. And so I looked around for a PhD program and I found one at UCLA uh, in atmospheric sciences, and I found an advisor, in fact, uh, who was interested in somebody working on uh, air pollution and also had was a computer modeler. And so when it was a really perfect fit because he had a project for me to work on, which was to study Los Angeles air pollution. And so I ended up building a computer model that uh, turned out to be the, I guess, the third kind of three-dimensional air pollution model in the world at the time, uh, which would actually uh, track air pollutants from their emission sources, their chemical evolution in the atmosphere, their transport, their interactions with clouds and radiation, and their deposition hmm. eventually to the ground. So I learned how to computer model. I became addicted to computer modeling and started just, now I started in the modeling in 1990, and I've been working on that same model for now 30 years. And so it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. 
it started as an urban air pollution model, then it grew to a regional, then I built a global model uh, that to study air pollution, and then they used that to study climate as well. And then I connected the global model with the regional model to be able to study pollution evolution from the small scale to the large scale and vice versa, and also climate impacts of pollution. And yeah, so I've just been improving that uh, ever since. And so it's a, a very detailed model that includes many, many things, uh, but I'm really proud of it, proud of it uh, because I think it really helps to understand the atmosphere better. So what, um, all right, so in this model, what are some of the main factors? Maybe it's obvious, but, you know, do you include emissions from cars, power plants? Like, what are some of the uh, the main features that go into the model? Yeah, so there are emissions, and their emissions are, well, there are different types of emissions. There's human emissions, and human emissions I usually obtain from uh, what are called emission inventories. So there are people whose career is based on developing emission inventories, so they develop this, they're gridded. So they're, they're either in a, in a city or a state or a country or the whole world where they'll actually break the world or the state or the city up into grids of different sizes. They might be from like one kilometer by one kilometer to five kilometers by five kilometers, or even one degree by one degree on the global scale. And they, they obtain emissions data. And so they end up getting these huge files of emissions and they're time dependent also over the course of a year or multiple years and from many different chemicals and from all the different sources. So the sources are from vehicles, from power plants, uh, from agricultural burning, even biomass burning. So those are anthropogenic or human emissions. And then there's also, there are also uh, natural emissions, which I actually predict in the model, like certain natural emissions are sea spray, but sea spray uh, depends on the wind speed and wave breaking. So you can actually model that physically uh, in one of these computer models. There's soil dust emissions is another natural emission, but that also depends on wind speed and the roughness of the surface. So you can hold that. There's emissions from lightning. There are bacterial emissions from uh, producing different gases from certain bacteria. And because you ha we have land use types and we have uh, different vegetation types in the model around the world, uh, we can actually estimate bacterial emissions. There's also um, what are called biogenic emissions, which are from plants themselves. And so we get, there are both natural and human emissions. So that's just the beginning. And then the model will take those emissions, they go into the air, then there's basically a weather prediction model in there that predicts the weather, predicts the winds, the um, wind speed, wind direction, the temperature, the air pressure, air density, uh, cloudiness. And but in terms of the pollution, it's we really need the winds to move the pollutants around. And then there's we solve for radi or go ahead. Okay, so if you did a Pareto and you put the factors in order of magnitude or importance, I know that's what the model is supposed to be, but, you know, which ones are the biggest sources? Like, start with the uh, the anthropogenic ones. You know, do you know what the true big sources of pollution are? Yeah, um, well, the human sources, there's basic categories are transportation, uh, power plants, uh, there's building sources, and then there's industrial sources and then then there's like agriculture agri agricultural sources so transportation is one of the largest but depending on the country some countries you know in the industrial sector might be larger uh, but it's usually transportation I, like electricity generation power plants is usually about 20 percent of end use energy so you know that's like a fifth but transportation might be close to 30% of the total industries, often around 30%. And then a lot so, of Okay, so the biggest is transportation. Within transportation, what's the biggest there? 
you know, like what does transportation consist of and what is the biggest uh, contributor and, you know, can you assign a percentage to it of, of emissions or pollution? Yeah, so that's done in the emission inventories, but the biggest, so those possible sources are vehicles, like passenger vehicles, then there's, then there's uh, small trucks, then there are large trucks, there are buses, there are trains, there's, there's off-road equipment like tractors and construction machines, then there's uh, aircraft, ships, uh, you know, small small marine vessel boats. So every possible thing that moves that requires fuel and combustion or other type of emissions is included. You know, but the major, and also we look at biochemical that's emitted. So we look at both gases and particles that are emitted. So like if you wanted to look at what's the biggest particle emitter, you would look at diesel vehicles and that could be diesel passenger vehicles and that also, you know, buses and trucks and tractors and construction machines and aircraft. Uh, have the case of aircraft is jet fuel, but it's similar with a lot of particles. But in terms of like gas emissions, uh, well, there, you also get those from diesel, but gasoline vehicles are more you know, gas heavy in terms of emissions. So there, it, it all the, the actual largest source will depend on the location for sure. So there's not like one answer, but these inventories do literally break it down by each vehicle type and uh, location and by chemical coming from each vehicle type. And also the conditions, like cold temperatures, you'll have more emissions usually than warmer temperatures. Well, um, has anyone, I haven't seen this, but um, has anyone done a balance for an all-electric car versus a gas car? You know, like my, my guess is that um, an electric car maybe prov- you know, requires more resources, et cetera, to make in the first place. Gas car, probably less. Again, it's my assumption. But then you have a very short payback period because you're not using gas, you're using electricity it's still created by, you know, big power plants that create the electricity. But again, has anyone done that calculation where they look at um, payback period to when an electric car is more efficient and less polluting than a, a gas car? Yeah, there've been a lot of studies and, and many of them are, get different results depending on the assumptions made. Um, for example, if you just kind of look at electric car versus a gas car, an electric car has fewer parts than a gas car and especially fewer moving parts. Um, but it has a big battery. So the big thing in electric cars are the batteries, um, but there's there's a motor, but no engine. You don't need an exhaust system and you don't need, so catalytic converter, you don't need, you don't need uh, lubricating oil and things like, like that. Um, so from an actual parts point of view, there are fewer parts, but they're, you know, it's pretty energy intense to make all the batteries. But, you know, so a lot of it depends on how you assume the batteries are produced in terms of, you know, how much energy is going into it or how much, pollution is going into making the car. Um, so for example, if, if you have like your, like the Tesla has a, a battery factory in, in Nevada, and if that's where your battery's made, well, a lot of that electri- electricity going into making the battery is coming from solar. So it's pretty clean. Whereas if you assume it's going to be made like in West Virginia, where there's a lot of coal, uh, then you're going to get a different result in terms of the payback time in, ter- uh, in terms of energy. But as you well, mentioned, uh, like once you produce the car, you're running on electricity and and electricity uses one fifth, you need one fifth the electricity energy uh, for an electric car, one fourth to one fifth, compared with the energy in gasoline. So you're just using much less energy once you're driving that car. So there is a quick payback time, no matter what the emissions are for making. And then what about the savings on emissions and tons of CO2, et cetera? Like, you know, I, I haven't bought an electric car yet, but uh, do they tell you that when you buy one? Or again, is there an independent calculation or set of them that it says, you know, if you drive an electric car, for X number of years, you're saving this much in terms of tons of CO2. 
yeah, there are several studies like this, and most of them will show you that that you'll overall you're definitely saving CO two. Um, there are a few that show you increases CO two, but generally those are by people who don't like electric cars. But uh, if you actually look agnostically at this, you should definitely save CO two. But what that's actually though in my mind is not the most important thing. What's the more important thing is you're eliminating tailpipe emissions of pollutants that affect people's health directly. So CO2 affects climate, but it's not something that when people breathe it in at the concentrations in ambient air, that it causes health problems. But what is the, all the other chemicals from vehicle exhaust do cause health problems. And it actually, like if you have the same amount of emissions from, uh, from a freeway or from a roadway versus from a power plant, well, people breathe in about 30 times more of the emissions from a roadway than they do from a power plant. So that's called the intake fraction. The intake fraction of from vehicle exhaust is about 30 times that of power plant exhaust. So people are arguing when you have an electric car, all you're doing is shifting the emissions to the power plant. Well, the people aren't breathing in that power plant emissions as much compared with the traffic exhaust emissions. So you're saving, uh, depending on which country you are, thousands to hundreds of thousands of lives a year by going to electric cars. Like worldwide, 7 million people die of air pollution every year. Uh, in the U.S., it's only about, I should say only, but it's around 78,000, which is a lot, but it's compared with like China, which is over a million, it's smaller. So, by, but you can get rid of uh, pollution from traffic uh, areas by going to electric cars, and that has such a huge health benefit and cost benefit because actually the cost of air pollution health problems worldwide is actually much larger right now than of climate damage, even though climate damage is quickly catching up. So what, um, out of the United States, which states are closest to getting to, uh, you know, zero emissions? Are any of them close? And what's the pathway look like? You know, if, if any of them have gone on this pathway, they would have been the learnings as uh, the progression has gone ahead. Yeah, actually, well, if, if we break it down into electricity versus all energy, as I mentioned, electricity is only a portion of all energy, maybe 20%. But there are some states that are 100% renewable right now. Well, there's one state, Vermont, that uh, is 100% renewable electricity. And then there are some that are uh, over 80% or around 80%, like Idaho, because they have a lot of hydro. And, uh, you know, states like Washington State has a lot of hydro. It's pretty high up there. Uh, California is on the order of close to 45 or even closer, close to 50% now in terms of its electric power being from renewable sources. And there, in fact, there are, uh, there are I think, um, above 50% renewable. There are around 10 states plus the District of Columbia. And so, yeah, 10 out of 50 states are in their electric power sector above 50% renewable. So that's progress. That's a lot of progress. But, but again, we want to look at all energy. And in terms of that, uh, we're a lot slower and transitioning because we really need to transition transportation to electric cars and uh, buildings get rid of gas and buildings and go to heat pumps for air heating and air conditioning and water heating and go to electric induction cooktops for example um, so there are only a few places that actually have laws right now to to transition buildings or vehicles but there are actually 14 states and territories that have laws to go to 100 percent renewable electricity so yeah, depending on the sector and the state, there has been some progress, uh, but we just have a long, long way to go in terms of transitioning everything. Well, again, what, so where is the uh, the biggest resistance that correlates with the biggest pollution? Is it is there resistance in the transportation sector or like where's the problem? Uh, 
I would say it's hard to say where the resistance, well, the resistance is usually coming from people who have an entrenched interest in the current infrastructure, but you do see there's less resistance in uh, transitioning electricity. Um, there are places that haven't, you know, a lot of places have a lot of laws, even if they're not 100% laws. Uh, a lot of places do have renewable portfolio standards. I think the South is probably the slowest to to gravitate towards these renewable portfolio standards, but there are laws in place. And like Florida is considering 100% renewables. Uh, there are a lot of towns and cities in North Carolina that have transitioned. There are a few towns in Louisiana that have transitioned. Uh, so, but the thing is, it's beneficial from a cost point of view to transition. So actually the states with the most wind installed, in fact, nine out of the 10 states with the most wind are all states that are more conservative states that would not support, for example, uh, usually support uh, laws for subsidizing renewables. But because the wind resources are so good and the power is so cheap, it's financially beneficial to install wind in these states. So it's really not a partisan issue, it turns out, and to install renewables. It's more, uh, it's more of a cultural shift. Like so people are less, even though they'll, use, they'll do it because it's cheaper, uh, they might not admit that they want to do it uh, because of partisan politics. And yet there's still, there is still is a transition going on in many states. In fact, for example, Iowa has, you know, on the order of 50% of its electricity is from wind. And the same with, you know, like North Dakota, South Dakota, they're, they're really high up there. Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas is very high. Um, so yeah, these windy states are just making a lot of money from it. So it's, it's really financially beneficial, creates jobs. And to boot, it does reduce air pollution and uh, and, it's, and it reduces costs. So consumers like it as well. So, all right. So again, what we have some states that are naturally blessed with wind, which is great, but um, are there any keystone states that uh, are either holding out or really are critical to get to a hundred percent? Or if they do, you think that other states will all of a sudden say, all right, we could do it too. Well, like California and New York have all have both committed to a hundred percent renewables in their electric power sectors. And, and as I said, 14 states, they, like one state that's having trouble is like, I think Ohio, uh, which passed a law because it has nuclear power. It passed a law to subsidize the nuclear and slow down the uh, wind and solar subsidies or not promote them or, or even inhibit. So there's a lot of, you know, nuclear team seems to be competing a lot to try to, um, which is kind of strange because, I mean, it's so expensive for nuclear power and there most of the nuclear that's existing already, it's becoming even less profitable to run it. So a lot of nuclear power plants would shut down unless they get really huge subsidies. Like New York uh, has three upstate nuclear reactors that are getting $7 billion in subsidies uh, just to stay open uh, because otherwise they'd have to close. And it turns out, well, if you just took that money and you could just literally replace them with cheaper wind and solar and still have money to boot. And yet, because they're entrenched and they have a good lobbying, lobbying arm, they are able to get these subsidies and uh, slow down the transition to clean renewable energy. Well, is, uh, I had thought nuclear was, you know, feared, but uh, incredibly efficient. So, you know, what is the state of nuclear? Is it not efficient or is this old nuclear that's not? Like, what's your um, observations there? Well, if you have existing nuclear, I think so long as it doesn't require a subsidy, and it's otherwise not deemed an immediate risk, those could stay open for a while until they retire naturally. But the problem is that many of them are not financially viable right now, even existing ones. 
And so they were asking for subsidies in several states, including New York and Ohio and other states, I think Illinois and a few, uh, even a few others. And it's just becoming really expensive to run them. And new nuclear is completely out of the question. It just takes forever to install. Like I would used to say 10 to 19 years, but there, you know, there are several reactors that are taking between 15 and 22 or 23 years now, just between planning and operation around the world. And the, and the cost is like five times that per, per unit energy compared to uh, new solar or wind on a large scale. And so it's, it's not cost effective. It takes forever. So you can't help to solve a climate problem. So we don't want to spend anything more on that technology. And that's not even accounting for all the, the risks it has, like uh, meltdown risk, the weapons proliferation risk, the mining risk, the waste. What do you do with all the waste you have to store for? So it's really kind of a non-starter in terms of solving the climate problems, but some existing nuclear could stay if it's not requiring subsidy. But the problem is it is, there are some plants that are asking for subsidy and that's uh, making it difficult to actually really solve the problem because they're so inefficient. Are there any new sources of alternative energy that are going to be big players or the ones we have are the ones that we need to expand upon a lot? For- yeah, it's not like we we don't need any miracle technology. We, I mean, wind and solar, geothermal, uh, hydroelectric, small amounts of tidal wave. I mean, I think the biggest growth of renewables in the U.S. and in a lot of places around the world will be offshore wind, in particular floating offshore wind. Now, right now, though, uh, that's being slowed down because the uh, current Trump administration has decided to slow down the permitting, uh, claiming all sorts of reasons while they're still allowing oil and gas to be permitted offshore uh, without the same requirements. So, uh, there's, so there's literally one wind farm offshore in the U.S. to date, and it only has a couple turbines. Whereas there are just all these companies that are just waiting, chomping at the bit to develop offshore. And that could literally power the entire U.S. if you put up enough. And because there's floating turbines, you can put them far offshore now. And it's an unlimited amount of wind offshore east and west coast. So that there's literally a, a bottleneck right now in really unleashing this huge uh, this huge production of clean renewable energy in the U.S. Uh, due to just policy infight. So... In terms of your modeling, what uh, what are some of the big insights that you've been getting or that you think you'll get if you haven't gotten them yet? Well, the biggest thing I found from my computer modeling when I was looking a lot at air pollution and climate impacts was the fact that black carbon, which is the main component of diesel exhaust and also jet fuel burning and biofuel burning and biomass burning, uh, is the second leading cause of global warming after carbon dioxide. And black carbon is a particle component it's not a gas. So carbon dioxide, it warms the surface of the earth by being transparent to solar radiation, but absorbing uh, the earth's infrared radiation. So acting like a blanket and trapping that uh, heat infrared radiation near the surface of the earth. Now, black carbon operates differently. It is black because it absorbs sunlight directly and doesn't allow that light to hit your eye. If you take out all wavelengths of light, you get black black carbon. But the black carbon will absorb that solar radiation, then it will convert it to heat radiation and radiate the heat to the air around it directly. So directly heating the air with solar radiation converted to heat rather than absorbing the Earth's infrared radiation. But per unit mass, black carbon is a million times more powerful than carbon dioxide in the air. But the thing is that black carbon has a very short lifetime in the air compared with carbon dioxide. But it turns out like of all the global warming worldwide, about 45% 
is due to carbon dioxide and about 17 to 20% is due to black carbon. And the third is methane is about 15% of the third leading cause. Of it. So is black carbon, uh, what they, what they call or used to call soot. Yeah. Black carbon is the main component of soot. And so it is part of soot. And well, what happens to it once it's, uh, you know, spit out of an exhaust, like, does it rise in the atmosphere or it falls down? Like, where does it go? Um, well, some of it will hit windows and, and roadways and trees and get absorbed. But actually, worldwide, about 90% of it is removed by rain. And But obviously, in sunny areas, it'll stay in the air longer. But it only has a lifetime on the order of a week or two, whereas carbon dioxide has a lifetime of like 50 years, 60 years. So, But in that time, it's much more powerful at warming than carbon dioxide. So, But if you continuously emit it, which is you do when you're driving around all the time, then it's always there in the air and it's causing a lot of warming. So it's a combination of how, how it's short lifetime, but it's, it's in fact that it's repeatedly emitted that allows it to be present. And so the nice thing about that is it's easy to control. I mean, if you can control the emissions of black carbon, it'll come out of the atmosphere quickly and you can have a feedback, a cooling of the climate quickly from that component alone versus carbon dioxide. If you stop emitting it, you know, you have to wait around 50 to hundred years before you see a big drop in the CO2 in the atmosphere. Well, where does, uh, where does black carbon go? What are the, you know, what happens to it once it's uh, emitted? Where does it tend to accumulate? Well, in the air, as I mentioned, it'll get, uh, it'll get removed by rain. And so rain can take it over the ocean, over land, but if it gets or, and it also gets absorbed by snow too. So if it goes, it gets absorbed by snow and let's say it goes onto snow or sea ice, it actually can warm and melt the snow and sea ice quicker. So like in the Arctic, there's a, some of it's being deposited on Arctic sea ice and that's speeding up the melting of the Arctic in a positive feedback. And uh, also, yeah, if it goes onto snow, it'll melt the snow as well faster than, you know, something else that's not absorbing a different type of particle that's reflects light rather than absorbs light. But yeah, does it so have any, uh, any, any unintended benefits? Is it, is it, can it be a fertilizer? Like what, uh, what's its ultimate end? It's, what does it tend to interact with? It, well, black carbon is basically pure carbon. Uh, it's like graphite. I mean, in fact, it is graphite. So it doesn't, I mean, you, it, it can react with something else to give you something that can be eventually become a nutrient, but it, as it really doesn't have any immediate benefits. Um, it does have a lot of actually bad effects because as you know, soot itself is really bad for health. In fact, because 7 million people die of air pollution each year and 90% of those people who die or die from particle effects of air pollution. And many of those particles contain soot. So soot, which contains black carbon, not only kills a lot of people, but it also is the second leading cause of global warming after carbon dioxide. So conversely, if you can stop its emissions, you can not only slow global warming, but you can improve people's health. And that was the finding of, I found from this model that it was also not only the second leading cause of global controlling it, is also a fast method of slowing global warming, at least to the degree that soot causes it and can reduce health problems significantly. So what else comes from the model that's uh, surprising or not obvious? Well, I've looked, for example, at the effects of, of particles at reducing ultraviolet radiation in urban areas. Uh, so maybe, this is maybe nerdy, but it's uh, like, for example, uh, there are some measurements in Los Angeles that showed uh, reductions of ultraviolet radiation that were on the west side of Los Angeles, there were uh, <clears throat> reductions uh, due to smog were about maybe 20, 30%, but then you got to the east side of the basin, there were up to 50% reductions of ultraviolet radiation. So I was trying to figure out 
what was causing these ultraviolet radiation reductions because you didn't see a corresponding reduction in visible radiation. You saw only maybe 5% reduction in visible. So something was preferentially reducing ultraviolet radiation versus uh, visible radiation. And so it couldn't be soot because soot actually reduces all wavelengths of radiation equally. So it turned out it was due to not black carbon, but what's called organic carbon or brown carbon, which is, is it's like an incompletely combusted carbon as well, but it has functional groups. It's not pure carbon. It's like carbon with some oxygen, nitrogen, some other chemicals on it. And it would preferentially um, absorb short wavelengths of light, in other words, ultraviolet light, and allow the longer wavelengths to go through. And it turns out these uh, turns out that as you go further east in the Los Angeles basin, uh, these organic compounds uh, would form, they would evolve and form as you went east, uh, but they'd also react and a nitrogen oxide group would add to it. And that might not mean anything, but a nitrogen oxide group basically increases the ability of a particle to absorb ultraviolet radiation. So the further east you went, there was more of this nitrogen oxide on the organics and more ultraviolet radiation reduction. So I I came up with an explanation of why you get this greater UV radiation reduction in eastern Los Angeles. Now, ironically though, well, because to form ozone, you need ultraviolet radiation. Uh, Because there was less ultraviolet radiation on the east side, you got little less ozone. Uh, however, because on the east side of LA, though, you still have a really high ozone. I mean, it's the, almost the highest in the country is on the east side of Los Angeles, but it was a little bit less because of the resulting reduction of ultraviolet radiation. So ironically, when I first came out with this study, you know, the, the, um, the conclusion was that there are certain chemicals in smog that were reducing ultraviolet radiation, and they also slightly reduced ozone as a result, but the ozone levels were still high. And so... And it was due to some particles that you needed to add to the air. And the particles have uh, bad health effects too. So this, the press got hold of this and the headline was, smog is good for you. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> they said smog is good for you for two reasons. It reduces ultraviolet radiation and it reduces ozone. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so everything's context. <laughs> well, which, of the, uh, which part of ultraviolet radiation did it reduce and... Again, what do you expect the effect would be upon people living in that area? Was it, was it significant? Was it minor? And again, what part of UV did it reduce? Well, it, so it did reduce the, the UV that re- was normally would be received to the surface, which is uh, UVA radiation, which is mostly tanning, but also a little bit of UVB radiation. We don't get UVC radiation, which is the shortest wavelength, the most damaging at the surface, but it would it would reduce harmful UV. But the, I mean, but at the at what cost? Uh, the cost is you need particles to be there. You need these or- organic carbon particles, brown carbon particles, which kill people a lot more than the reduction in the UV. Re- reduction in UV, I mean, it's depending on your skin type, it could cause damage, but uh, trivial in comparison to the health effects of the particles, which are uh, killing in California about 13,000 people a year and causing illness to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people more. And in Los Angeles alone, you know, there's about four to 6,000 people dying from air pollution. So these particles, you need more particles to reduce the UVs. So it's not helping anybody in the end. And the reduction of ozone, it's still the highest in the country. So it's not helping that very much either. Uh, and the right, particles right. are causing more health damage than the ozone anyway. What about, um, in a, so you're modeling at a state level or a city level or both or, a, you know, a micro level? Like and how so many I've things is your, I've done yeah, down what does your model consider? I've done down to like street uh, level, just a few meters resolution. Uh, done a lot of city work 
in or re, in regional work where it's maybe either from one kilometer to five kilometer resolution. And then I've done a lot of work at the state and country levels of the U.S. and also global. Um, so yeah, different types of studies for different scales, which is nice. And the nice thing about building your own model and understanding it, so you can do all sorts of things. It's like a really cool tool for me because I, you know, I know it inside out. And so I can set it up to uh, at any different scale, any scale. And it has so many different things in it. You can just, you know, I can spend multiple lifetimes studying different things. You know, but right so now, you, uh, are there industries that you interact with? Like, you know, how do you feel your model is being put to its best use? Um, some, well, I, don't know, I wouldn't say I interact. Like, I don't um, do work for industries. I do work, academic work and research work. Uh, I do, you know, respond to some uh, issues. Like, I'll give an example. Like, uh, there's, I don't know if you remember the Aliso Canyon natural gas leak, where there's a, there's a gas for, uh, storage facility down in Aliso Canyon, uh, California, which is towards just north of Los Angeles. And it was, a, it was basically a blowout of natural gas was just pouring out for three months uh, of this storage facility from the ground. And it's just huge amounts. And it's like one of the biggest releases ever of natural gas. And it's like a big plume that got spread over California. And, and then there's all sorts of lawsuits that have resulted from it. So I became interested in saying, okay, well, because I have a model that's worked a lot in Los Angeles and Southern California, why not try to simulate what's the impact of that natural gas leak on air pollution levels and short-term climate in California? Because natural gas is made mostly of methane, which is a strong greenhouse gas. Methane itself doesn't have, uh, you know, low concentrations or, you know, or moderate concentrations doesn't have health effects to a large degree, but there are other components of natural gas that do, and plus methane does react in the atmosphere and convert to over time. So it's a, it's a simple problem, but a complex problem. Uh, it's simple because there's one source that we're really looking at, but then you have to look at the evolution and the transport, and the chemi- chemistry and the radiation in the clouds and see what the impact is. So the, the result was there in California, there are likely additional deaths due to the resulting ozone and particulate matter that from chemical production. Um, And there's slight climate effects in different places. Eventually it got cleaned out. So, you know, they were short, these were short-term impacts, but you know, this is useful information because otherwise there's no way anybody can even guess what the impact is unless you can, unless you model it. I did something similar with Fukushima, the nuclear disaster, uh, to see what was the worldwide health impacts of Fukushima. I did this for the student, uh, John Tenhove, who's graduated, but he, um, he took my model and, yeah, simulated the plume from Fukushima and all the uh, radionuclides uh, going from there and looking at the transport of cesium and iodine across the Pacific Ocean around the world and what the concentrations were in different parts and different states in the U.S. of the radiation and compared it to data because there actually are measurements of radiation throughout the U.S. and different parts of the world. So oh, so what's, a, what's a short comment on Fukushima, how much has it impacted and what areas, you know, well, just briefly? So there were, yeah, there were elevated concentrations of these radionucleides by quite a bit. Um, they, we, didn't, we estimated they wouldn't cause uh, much health effect in the U.S. Uh, because the concentrations are still low, even though they're much elevated. However, in Japan and neighboring countries, uh, concentrations were high enough to cause uh, an estimated on the order of 1,000 additional deaths over a lifetime of people, but mostly in Asia, and which is... Some people had estimated much higher. Some people had estimated much lower, but they're basically 
you know, all of those other cases when they're estimating, they're just, you know, doing it on the back of the envelope. And this was a, a 3D model where we can actually compare with measurements and actually look at track the evolution around the world of all stuff. What, um, quick question. If, if I live in a particular city, what does the pollution around me look like, you know, in the morning, the afternoon, the evening, and at night? You know, how does it, what's like the diurnal variation? I know it probably depends on city, but any generalities there or interesting phenomena? Well, generally, you, there are high concentrations of what are called primary pollutants in the morning. Primary pollutants are those emitted directly, as opposed to secondary pollutants or those that form chemically in the atmosphere. So in the morning, you have two things going on. You have rush hours that put high amounts of pollution in the air directly, the primary pollutants. And you also have uh, what's called a low inversion. Air in the in, at nighttime, the ground cools relative to the air. So when that happens, you have a, an inversion of temperature. Temperature increases with increasing. In other words, it's cold at the ground and it's warmer higher in the air. So the temperature increases with the height. And that, when you have that situation, it's very difficult for air emitted near the surface to rise. So it stays, stays trapped near the surface. So you have a combination of both high emissions and a low volume of air to mix the emissions into. So the concentrations are high and that's kind of dangerous from breathing, breathing point of view. And then as the day wears on, you get the sun coming up and that cooks a lot of pollution. So you get what are called secondary pollutants and they form, and that's ozone is a secondary pollutant that usually peaks in the afternoon. However, at the same time, the air lifts or you're able to, you, the inversion breaks down somewhat and you're able, the air is able to rise or dilute more. Um, so that helps, except some of these secondary pollutants get so concentrated, even in dilute afternoon air, there's still high concentration. So you will have different pollutants in morning versus afternoon. And a lot depends on your exact location, the weather, exact weather conditions, the direction of the wind. But uh, in, all, in you know, some cities like Los Angeles, there's no real safe time. You're, you're just getting different chemicals that you're breathing in in the morning. Like you'll get carbon monoxide, oxides of nitrogen, reactive organic gases in the morning. In the afternoon, you'll get ozone, aldehyde, acetyl nitrate. So it's just has, a it, has anyone modeled what would a person, a typical person, experience health-wise or cognition-wise or whatever as they travel throughout a typical day and night in a polluted uh, city? I th I don't know about specific you know tracking of specific person what they're breathing i'm sure people have well an average an average theoretical person what might they experience based on these changing pollutants throughout a 24-hour cycle well i think what's done more is like epidemiological studies of how does air pollution in general if you're living in a city affect your health and so it used to be like in los angeles it used to be uh, living there if you didn't smoke was like smoking two packs of cigarettes a day and many cities really? in the world now are like two to three packs of cigarettes a day. Now it's like more like a half a pack of cigarettes a day. And, but you're still losing, the average person in any big city in the U.S. is probably losing about six months of their uh, due to the air pollution currently. And that's, but that's a lot better than it used to be to two years. Uh, but if you're living like in many cities like in China or India right now, even way more polluted, you're probably losing 10 to 15. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, it's 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 amazing how we're, the more we learn about air pollution, the more we learn how it impacts uh, most illnesses or many illnesses: stroke, heart attack, heart. You know, if you have a heart attack in polluted air, you're more likely to die. Uh, pollutants can trigger stroke. You get cardiovascular disease, respiratory illness, complications, pneumonia. Like of the seven million people who die every year from air pollution, twenty percent are children under the age of five years old, and a lot of these are children in developing countries who are exposed to indoor burning of biofuels and coal for home heating and cooking. 
I mean, they're just exposed, these small bodies are exposed to high concentrations of pollutants indoors from burning uh, fuels for heating and cooking. And then they might not, not die of like the respiratory illness, but they're going to die because their immune system is weaker. And so when they get uh, a flu, they develop pneumonia and they die. So it's a very, yeah, it's a very probable. Mm. And out of the um, the major renewables, solar, wind, geothermal, et cetera, um, is there any to you that stick out as having the most promise or being the closest to uh, contributing to a significant portion of our energy? Well, w- wind and solar are by far going to be the leading uh, candidates to solve the problem, but just because the resources are so large for both and and also broad. You can do it in a lot of different areas. Now, geothermal, uh, I mean, theoretically, there's enough heat in the earth to also help solve the problem, but you have to dig way deep to get most of that heat. And there's like in the U.S., there are like only 13 states that have a, a good geothermal reservoirs for electricity. There's a lot of geothermal power for heat uh, available pretty much everywhere. And so that will be exploited quite a bit. But in terms of electricity, you're just you're not going to have a huge amount of geothermal. Um, hydro is a lot, pretty much tapped out. There'll be some growth, but not nearly so much as in solar. There'll be tidal and wave have potential, but again, they're they're more expensive still and haven't been fully. Correct. So. We need to solve the problem for climate change uh, in 10 years, at least 80% of it in 10 years. And so we really need to focus on technologies that are exist now and cheap. So that's going to be most. Okay. Well, very good, Mark. It's been really good speaking to you. What's the best way for people to get in touch or to, uh, you know, see some of the prognostications of your modeling, you know, to find out more about you? Um, well, I have a Stanford University website, which uh, a search under Mark Z. Jacobson can find pretty easily. There's a lot of papers uh, by topic there. Um, yeah, if, you can email me at jacobson at stanford.edu as well. I'm on Twitter with updates, at, uh, which is at mzjacobson, with an O-M. And yeah, so I, I, I pretty much try to put out all my recent work there when it comes up. And also, I'm just finishing a textbook for a class that's uh, called a 100% Clean Renewable Energy and Storage for Everything which pretty much summarizes all our energy plans we've been developing uh, over the last 10 years. And there is actually an online class that some people might be interested in. So right now there's a short version, just three three lectures that can be linked from my website. You can find from my website. Um, but I'm also trying to make a, an online class that's like a full length class, but it might not be ready for that. That will be hopefully very low cost or free. Well, very good. Well, Mark, thank you for coming. And uh, you know, I appreciate speaking to you. Yeah, thank you for having me on on your show. You've been listening to the Future Tech Edition of the Finding Genius Podcast. This podcast is information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed. Review us on iTunes or wherever you listen and subscribe today by going to futuretech.findinggeniuspodcast.com.